All right. So, you know, I'm, I really am like bizarrely honored to, you know, have you here, Greg and, and Bruxy. I just together at the same time, I'm, I'm really blessed. You've enriched my life, enriched my soul. And uh, I just know it's going to bear a lot, a lot, a lot of fruit. So uh, we welcome you again and we ask you to come and just relieve yourself on us in Jesus' name. <laughs> All right, all right. He just invited me to come up here and relieve myself. I said, I, I think I'll wait. <laughs> uh, one of the things I, I like about Pastor Carl is just, I, I noticed that you comment a lot about having fun. And, and it, see, I, I really think that if, if you're in the zone where you're doing what you're created to do and you're doing what God's called you to do, it can be very hard, it can be trying, it can be frustrating, all that, but it ought, it ought at, at the bottom level be fun. Yeah, have fun. I think that's, that's good. I like to have. Pastors just want to have fun. We got to write a song like that. Pastors just want to have fun. I praise God this morning because I woke up and I finally got rid of this uh, thing in my ear. It, it always happens when I fly on those like littler planes when they come over here because they don't have this good air pressure, whatever. And I often get this. But last night when I was talking with you, I sounded like this. I, you know, you're in a box and, and you can't hear. It's, it's, you feel like you're in a tin can or something. And I woke up this morning and it's, ah, I can hear. So, hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right. Uh, I, I want to do a little review from last night and to set up what I'm going to be talking about this morning because we're going to get into it. You guys ready to get into it? Uh, we're going to get into it. Um, okay, so, uh, and do we have this on the PowerPoint there? Yeah, so here's a little prelude just by way of review. The revelation of God we saw in, in last night in Jesus culminates and supersedes all previous revelations. He's not one revelation among others. He's not one word among a lot of words. There's only one word. And, uh, and that's Jesus Christ, the Word who was made flesh. Um, so lock that in. Whatever else you think, whether you end up agreeing with me this morning about this Old Testament stuff or not, uh, lock it in. God looks like Jesus. E even if you can't explain anything else, you got to know this. Uh, everything hangs on that. Uh, secondly, the cross is the thematic center of everything Jesus was about, from the incarnation to the, uh, to the ascension. And so when I talk about the crucified Christ, I'm talking about the whole ministry of Jesus, but I'm emphasizing that it's cross-centered. Everything he does is oriented towards the cross, and it all culminates on the cross. That's why he says he glorifies the Father when uh, he's crucified. Uh, that's where you see the Father's character most perfectly put on display. Then uh, third, Jesus' cross-centered ministry reveals that God's essence is nonviolent, self-sacrificial, enemy-embracing love. So God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And here's how we know what love is, 1 John 3, 16. Uh, here's our note, love is Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So God is cross-like love. Other-oriented, self-sacrificial love, even within God's own being. Do you know that as, a, as unusual and unexpected as it is, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, it allows us to say, it, it, only Christians can say with any kind of consistency that God is love. Uh, love is the noun that God is. It's not just a verb that God does. So it, love's not second to his nature. It is God's nature. And, and the reason is because love presupposes an I and a thou, a, a relationship. Love's a relationship. And, and so if, if, like in Islam and Judaism, when you have just a, a, an unnuanced monotheism, God all by God's self, um, you, you could say that God's potentially loving, 
Uh, and, and when God creates the world, God can love. But God is not himself love because there's no I or thou. Only when you have a conception of God, it's something like a community of, of, that's perfectly united in love. Only then uh, can you say God is love. God doesn't need to create a world to love. Uh, he didn't create us out of any kind of need. Uh, he created us out of, out of abundance uh, in order to share the perfect love that he is with us. That's the goal of everything. Uh, to invite others in on this paracresis. Remember that word from last night? The mutual indwelling of the three persons. They're, they're fully other-oriented toward one another. So God's other-oriented even, even within God's self. And then he invites us in on the joy and the peace and the glory of that dance. It's been going on throughout eternity, and it will be going on throughout eternity, and we get to join it. Uh, that's the goal of the whole thing. Yes. Amen. That's what salvation is all about. So um, the final thing is all Scripture is God-breathed. That's the term that uh, Paul uses, theonoustos, in, in uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed. And it's God-breathed for the ultimate purpose of pointing us to the life of Scripture, which is Jesus Christ, uh, to bring us into a relationship. It's really important to remember that. Uh, you know, people talk a lot about, you know, there's a lot of debates about, is the Bible inerrant? Is it infallible? And what's odd about that is that it, those terms have no meaning unless you give them content. Infallible for what? Uh, it, what's it supposed to accomplish? Uh, what can we go to this book expecting? Uh, what can we trust it to infallibly accomplish? And in the end, I'd say that the, the one thing we're supposed to trusted to infallibly accomplish is to point us to Jesus Christ. And it will do that. If you come with the right spirit, the right heart, it, it, will, it will bear witness to Jesus. Uh, if you're trusting it for a lot of other reasons, you're trying to make it a science book or you know, whatever, it, it's, it's going to let you down. Um, but it won't fail you if you're reading it for the purpose for which God breathed it. All right. So I affirm that all scripture is God breathed. Uh, and this is the foundation of what I call the cruciform hermeneutic. Uh, cruciform just means cross-like, cruciform. And, and, uh, and, and, and so here's it in a nutshell, and then I'll be unpacking this whole thing this morning. We must read the Old Testament, knowing that the true, nonviolent, self-sacrificial, enemy-embracing nature of God is fully revealed in the crucified Christ, and that all Scripture is God-breathed for the ultimate purpose of pointing us to this revelation. So I'm going to be showing how when we read the Bible through the lens of the cross, knowing that it all points to the cross, knowing that the true God's revealed on the cross, when you read it in that way, we're going to see that, as I'm going to propose to you, that, that it, it completely changes the meaning of things. Uh, you can see stuff you couldn't see before. It gives you, it, it's like having x-ray vision or something. You're able to penetrate the word in a way that you couldn't before. If you're reading it, through the lens of the cross, which means if you're reading the Bible, really, really, really trusting, confident that God is as beautiful as God's revealed to be uh, on the cross. Jesus doesn't just reveal the nice part of God, and there's a sinister dark side over there. No, in, in, he is light, and in him there is no darkness. That's been the problem with, probably the most fundamental problem with Christian theology throughout history since the fourth century on, is that they say yes to God, like Luther, he, he, no other God have I but the born in a manger died on a tree. This is God for us, fully revealed in Jesus Christ. But then he also held to this dark side of God. He called it Deus Abscondicus, uh, the, the hidden God. And that God is capable of atrocious things. For example, uh, Luther said that the devil is simply the mask that God wears when he does evil stuff. 
but in such a way that the devil's responsible for doing what God ordains him to do, and God's all holy for ordaining him to do it. Go figure that one out. But so you have a God that's totally not like Jesus. Uh, we have to say God is Christ-like, God is cross-like, without remainder. Period. Full stop. Shut up. No more ads. No us. God has no but. You heard that last night. There's no love but. Get rid of the love but. <laughs> I mean, it's really, there's no but. It's just God is love. Stop. And everything else, that, if that's who God is, everything God does is an expression of that love. He doesn't act contrary to his nature. So he's all loving. So now, here's the question. Here's the problem. Uh, we lock this in that, that Jesus is fully God. Uh, and that and he fully reveals God. And Jesus also endorses the entire Bible as being the word of God. But in that Bible that he endorses as being the word of God, all breathed for the purpose of pointing to him, we find portraits of God that don't look anything like Jesus. And we just got to be honest about this. Uh, we, we have, I think most Christians pretend like it's not there. And we hardly ever, we skip over these parts, or we you know, just try to ignore them. Uh, one author said that most Western Christians are functional Marcionites. And what that means is Marcion was a heretic in the second century who throughout the whole Old Testament just said, we're done with that. It's not inspired. Actually, he said it was inspired by a different God. Uh, and that was deemed to be a heresy, because it is. But we're functionally like that because we pretend like it's not there. This is important because it's, it's a major obstacle to people coming to faith. More and more, it's an obstacle to people coming to faith. If you read Richard Dawkins and uh, you know, Sam Harris and these other folks, they're hammering this thing. Uh, Dan Barker, a friend of mine who was an Assembly of God pastor and now is an atheist and head of the Freedom Coalition, Freedom from Religion Coalition in America. Um, and I've debated him a number of times at universities and stuff. But uh, he, he came out with this book, uh, God, the, the Worst Fictional Character in All of History, something like that. And it, it's all about this old, he just hammers these portraits of God in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's increasingly problematic because we're living in a world now where it, it looks like terrorism is going to be a permanent uh, feature of this world from now on. I don't know how we're ever going to totally eradicate that. Um, and, and what that does is it heightens people's sensitivity towards religious violence. And more and more, violence is becoming a reason why people are opting out of religion in general, whether it's Christian, Islam, whatever. Uh, the whole idea of a violent conception of God is, is, is increasingly problematic to people. And there's a number of studies now that have been done that have shown that when people have a book that they consider to have divine authority, and there are violent depictions of God in that divine authority, it inclines people to at least be less sensitive to violence and sometimes more inclined towards violence. If the God you worship is capable of macabre violence, then, then well, why, why shouldn't you be? I mean, you're made in his image. You're made in the image of a violent God. I am convinced that, given the trajectory that we're going, uh, it won't happen overnight, but in time, I think only a nonviolent God is going to be plausible. Um, any God that's capable of violence is going to be one that's going to be written off. So I, there's a lot at stake here, both in terms of our integrity and coming to honestly deal with, with the Bible. There's a lot at stake in terms of our witness to the world. There's a lot at stake in terms of uh, evangelism and apologetics. Uh, a lot hangs on this. What do you do with these, these, these portraits? Now, I, I've got 60 pages more than that. Crucifixion of the Warrior God that just catalogs all this violence. Um, and I encourage you, and it's, I have 20 pages or so in Cross Vision, 
but it's good to, to I encourage you to at some point go through all that because when I, when I masked it all together, when I pu- pulled all the, this text together about 15 years ago uh, to deal with this, I was really overwhelmed and amazed by how much is there. There's over a thousand different uh, depictions of God either commanding or engaging in violence. Some of it really macabre violence. There's a lot of nasty stuff there. Um, and and uh, so, but this morning I'm just going to deal with one. And I think it is probably the most problematic, the most famous of all the violent passages in the Bible. I, I'm just going to be giving you one aspect of what I'm calling the cruciform hermeneutic. Um, there's actually four different dimensions of it, but for time's sake, I'm just going to deal with one. So the passage I want to look at is, um, uh, has to do with, it's called the harim command, or harim command, if you speak Ivrit, uh, Hebrew. Um, and, and, it, and it goes like this. In the cities of the nations, the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive anything that breathes. If it breathes, you've got to kill it. Completely destroy. That's the word harim. Everyone say harim. Yeah, clear out that throat. <laughs> Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Termites. If it's got ites at it, you kill it. As the Lord your God has commanded you, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them because you can, carry, you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees people that you should besiege them? <laughs> uh, the logic of that has always escaped me. Um, and, and then the next passage. And then uh, see, this command is given, or it, it's, it's recorded as being given or carried out 37 times. Almost all of it in the conquest narrative, uh, but once in Samuel. Um, 37 times you have this. And then there's other bizarre aspects of it. I'll just give you one. Um, and, and I mentioned this last night, N- Numbers 31. The Israelites spare Midianite women, young boys and children, but Moses is enraged. He said, go out and slaughter the Midianites, and it's clear that he meant slaughter them all. And so when the soldiers come back, and they had kept the, the, the cattle and all that stuff, and they kept the women and the young boys, uh, the civilians, and Moses is enraged by that. He's really mad. Um, you're supposed to slaughter them all. But apparently he has a second thoughts on it, because he says, well, I'll tell you what, uh, kill all the boys and all the non-virgin women, but you can keep the virgin women for yourself. That's for yourself. Say for yourself, every girl who has never slept with a man. And read in its original context, he's not saying you can marry them first. No, it, this is rape. This is what you do in ancient war. The, the, the spoils of war, the reward for winning, is that you get to keep the, the, the women. And the Israelites had a particular thing about virgins. And, and so they killed the non-virgins and saved the other ones for, the, for themselves. So these young girls now are going to be lifelong sexual slaves to whatever soldier uh, took them under their wing. You have to... It, it, it can sound disrespectful... But I don't mean it like this, but you have to call it what it is. This is terrible, horrendous. If you, were, if you read this in any other book, you would say, this is absolutely diabolically terrible. It doesn't become holy just because it's in our book. Yeah. We've we got to get honest with this. This is, this is terrible stuff. And, and if you're not honest with the problem, you can never be, get honest with the solution. It was only when I really faced this stuff and admitted myself that this is terrible that I, I began to, I think began to see a, 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 a solution in it. At another point, we, we find this. It says, when the Lord God brings you... Oh, where, where am I here? Um, another passage? Yeah. After conquering a city, the Lord's depicted as saying, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, 
you may take her as your wife. But then oddly enough, it says, if, you, if, if the person later is not pleased with the wife, you can turn her out. So you just slaughtered these people, but you spared the woman, and this one you find attractive. So here, it's different from the other passage, because there you just get to have the woman to have fun with. Here you can marry her, but if she doesn't please you, there's a time of mourning, you have to give her time of mourning before you have sex with her. Uh, but when that's done, if she doesn't please you, then it doesn't specify any reason. And like, this, yeah, this isn't working out. You, you, you can turn her out. Now, in some ways... That's an improvement over the rest of the culture because in the rest of the culture, you could keep her as a slave. You're not allowed to keep her as a slave in this particular text. Other texts, you can. But, but you see a little improvement here. And that's, that, we'll see here that that's evidence the Spirit of God's moving people away from their cultural conditioning. It's an improvement, but it's still terrible. This lady just lost all of her family, all of her tribe, everybody. And now she's in a foreign land, and now she's out on the street. Uh, not a lot of prospects uh, for a person in that situation. So... This is the, uh, the issue we're going to be dealing with. Um, so here's the thing. In 2005, as I got clearer and clearer about the centrality of Christ and the cross and how central uh, loving enemies and nonviolence is to Jesus' revelation of God and to his kingdom ethics, uh, the clearer I got about that, the more problematic these texts became. And, and the more problematic they became for my congregation. So I was, people were asking me all the time, what about the Old Testament? What about this? What about this? And so in 2005, I thought, I, I, I've got I've, I've to deal with this problem. And I thought I would take a summer out, make it my summer project. I was working on a different project that I still have not finished. Uh, but I took a, this is what happens when you have ADD. You just keep on bouncing from one half-done project to the other. Uh, but I thought I'd take a summer out. And, and I had collected arguments, you know, throughout the last 20 years, reading different books on the topic. And I was going to write a book defending God's behavior in the Old Testament. I, I, giving like the, the reasons why God had to do it this way. I don't know if you've read this book or know about it, but like Paul Copin wrote a book called Is God a Moral Monster in 2011? And that was basically the book that I was going to write because he tries to defend all of God's uh, butchering and all that in the Old Testament. And, and, and you basically, you just put the best possible spin on it to try to look, make God look... The goal is to make God look ethical, at least make him look a little bit less nasty. And so I started to put together these arguments and write out this book. And I got about 40 to 50 pages into it. And I thought, excuse my French, but this sucks. This is just, it, it, it was just not convincing. I, I, my argument, they, they just didn't carry any weight. I, I, this, they didn't convince me. And if they don't convince me, I can't expect them to convince anyone else. So I had to abort the project. So I'm, I, I'm now in this kind of in-between zone, uh, this, this place where, I believe Jesus is, is, is the full revelation of God. God looks like, like Jesus. But I also have to, on his authority, I have to believe the Old Testament. But the Old Testament contains these pictures that don't look anything like Jesus. Um, what do I do with this? And I didn't know. I, I, I just sat there in no man's land for several months. I'd, I'd come upon some advice by uh, a second century theologian named Origen, my favorite early church theologian. You like Origen? Of okay. He, he, he was a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And very honest so, so he regarded everything in the Bible to be absolutely divinely inspired. And yet he was honest. Uh, these portraits of God, of him commanding this genocide, and because there's no other term you can call that. If you wipe out a whole people group, that's genocide. Um, and, and, but he, he, there's no way that that can uh, be an accurate reflection of God if Jesus is the, the fully accurate conception of God. Um, and he, but he says, when you come upon stuff in the Bible that is unworthy of God, 
Uh, or you come upon impossible conundrums, contradictions, things you just can't make sense. He says, don't get angry. And don't, certainly, you're not allowed to throw it out. You must humble yourself before the word. The word is divinely inspired. But he says, when you come upon things like that, humble yourself before the Lord. Um, submit yourself to the word, even though you don't understand it. And then ask the spirit to reveal to you a deeper truth that will resolve the conundrum or show you how the passage is worthy of God. Uh, he says, keep on digging. He uses this uh, metaphor all the time. There's a treasure. When you come upon things in scripture that are unworthy of God or that don't make any kind of sense, that is where the, start digging there because there's a treasure. But God intentionally makes us work for it because that grows our character, deepens our dependency on the spirit. It, it, God expects us to be earnest in, in knocking you shall find, seeking shall be opened, uh, or knocking shall be opened unto you. So there's a part we play in this, but the spirit's got to reveal it to us. So I, for several months, just sat here with all these violent texts over here on the one hand, my confidence that Jesus fully reveals God on the other hand, and just like, okay, Lord, how does this work together? How does this fit? And what happened after about three months, this could be my craziness. I, I could be just seeing the face in the cloud that I'm looking for. Or it could have been re revelation. And that's something that the body has to discern. And that's what I'm doing now. It, it, that's why you write a book. It's like, Time will tell, the Gamaliel principle. If, if, if it takes off, if the church agrees this is an insight, then it was a revelation. Otherwise, I might just go down history as an insane person who came up with a crazy idea. Uh, and so I put this out there just as that. If, if it fits, if it works for you, wonderful. If it doesn't, find something better and let me know about it. And uh, I'll publish a book and, and steal your idea and get famous for that. So there you go. So... But what happened to me was something like what happens with these magic eye uh, books. You ever see, see where they have like a, a random wallpaper, it looks like. And, and, but if you look at it the right way, yeah. you got to relax your eye. Don't look at the picture, look through the picture. You know, they have all this advice. Uh, a three-dimensional object will all of a sudden come out at you. First time I, I, I counted this was in the early 90s. I was at a Christmas party and they're passing around a book. And, and you know, people stare at it and... Every once in a while you hear, oh, I see it, I see it, I see it. And so everyone was taking turns doing this magic eye thing. It was when they first came out, so far as I know. And I got it, and I could not see anything but wallpaper in that. And they kept on saying, relax your eye, look through it, you know, look. look, look. And it's like, I'm trying all these things with my eyes, and I couldn't see it. I actually came to, I began to suspect that this was a joke on me. I'm being punked. That everyone else is in on this joke. Let's pretend like we see dolphins in this picture, and Greg's going to be trying to find dolphins, you know. And so I, for a while, said, there's nothing here. You guys are just joking. But it turns out they were all telling the truth. So the person let me take the book home. And for two weeks, <laughs> I tried to find dolphins in this wallpaper. Searching for dolphins in the wallpaper. But finally, one night, and I, I, it, was, it wasn't with the dolphins. I went to a, the easiest one they had. And it was a little heart. He said, start with this one. And so I'm staring on the couch waiting for Shelly to get ready because she takes about five times as long to get ready for bed as I do. So I'm downstairs, she's upstairs, and I'm on the couch trying to see this heart, and finally, all of a sudden, it popped out for a second, but then it disappeared. So I got excited. So I looked at it again, and finally slowly came out, this three-dimensional thing. I said, honey, I see it! And I, I, I didn't want to take my eyes off it, because I might never see it again. And so I walk upstairs like this, honey, I can see it! I was so elated. I was so elated. But I, I began to see, to find the cross in these abhorrent, ugly, terrible portraits of God. 
And that's what I'm going to be sharing here this morning. Uh, seeing how these things actually bear witness to the God who's revealed uh, uh, on the cross. Okay, and you're going to get a little bit of my uh, great artistic skills here this morning. So prepare yourself for Van Gogh. I began to see how this bears witness to the crucified Christ when I asked two questions. And the first one, and neither of these have I ever heard people ask before, but once I asked them, they st- it struck me as the most obvious questions in the world. The first question, and really the most important question, is this. How, how does the cross become the definitive revelation of God for us? How does that work? Because if you're just a regular person looking at the cross, all you see is a crucified criminal. So, here's my artistic skills. Is, uh, is it positioned right? They wanted to make sure they could get it on the... And thank you for getting the board for me and all these nice multicolored things here. Wow, this is wonderful. Okay, so here's the cross. Dun, 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 dun. Already, I should have put this lower, but we'll work with it. All right, here's the cross. Now, so here's Joe Nonbeliever. Oh, no, this is the believer because he's happy. And here's the non-believer. How's that? All right. So when, when, when Joe non-believer looks at the cross, all he sees is this crucified criminal. It's, it's hideous. It's ugly. What does the believer see that the non-believer doesn't see? And what I began to see is, like, I look back at this... Nazarene who was crucified 2,000 years ago, more than that, 2,000 years ago, and, and it, I say, this is, this is what God's like. But Joe Nonbeliever doesn't see this. And, and, and the question is, what do we see that's different? Well, there's nothing that we see on the surface that's different. The surface here is, is actually revoltingly ugly. And we know that's ugly because it mirrors the ugliness of our sin. But what, what the believer sees, it's not what you see on the surface that reveals God. It's what you see behind it. And what you see is God, represented as a triangle. It's God who steps into this. God who steps into this. That's what Paul calls the message of the cross, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And it's the fact that God would stoop this low, as I said yesterday, to become our sin and to become our curse. God goes to the infinite extreme, couldn't go any further in all eternity. And the distance that God crosses reveals, the unsurpassable distance God crosses reveals the love that God is. So it's, 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 it's God's, I sometimes refer to it as God's stooping. God stoops. The, the condescension is the revelation. The stooping is the revelation. But it, this you see only by faith. Joe can't see it because Joe doesn't have faith. Joe just sees the surface. And so for the believer, the cross becomes simultaneously unsurpassably beautiful and revoltingly ugly. It's, it's revolting beauty. It's on the surface, it's, it's, it's absolutely ugly because the surface reveals the sin that God's bearing. It reflects the ugliness of the sin that, God, that God's bearing. But it's, it's profoundly beautiful, unsurpassably beautiful, because you by faith see God stepping into it. So it's what you see going on behind the scenes that reveals, uh, that, that reveals God. There's something else going on here on the cross other than what you see with the natural eye. So we have, a, we have a surface penetrating faith that looks through the surface and you see that God is the one who has stepped into, it, stepped into this and the stooping is the revelation. Now, if the cross is the full revelation of what God's really like, it's a revelation of what God's always been like. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
So it reveals what God is like even when God breathes scripture. And God breathes scripture to point us to this, this definitive revelation. So in that light, doesn't it make sense to ask the question, where else might we find God revealing himself this way? If this, reveal, if this reveals what God is like, we shouldn't think that this is an anomaly or, or a one-off event. This reveals what God has always been like. So should we ask, when we read the Bible, perhaps we should be asking the question, where else might we find God revealing himself through an ugly surface that we have to use faith, since we know what God's really like, use faith to look through the ugly surface to see God stooping to bear the sin of his people and to take on a semblance, a likeness that reflects the ugliness of that sin. That's what God does on the cross. He takes on our sin and then takes on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of that sin. Well, if that's what God's really like, maybe we should be reading the Bible with that in mind. Where else might we come upon portraits of God, depictions of God, where, where the surface doesn't reveal what God's like. The surface rather reveals the sin of the people that he's dealing with. But what reveals what God is like is that God was willing to condescend to, to, to take on this appearance. And I submit to you that all, every portrait of God in the Bible that is sub-Christ-like is, 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 falls in this category. Uh, God is accommodating, meaning people where they're at. Uh, what's behind this uh, an assumption that, that, that is at work here is that, as I said yesterday, that the cross is the power of God. Uh, Paul says the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. Um, and love, it's a self-sacrificial love that's revealed on the cross, that is not a coercive kind of power. It's an influential power. L love influences but doesn't manipulate. If that's how God is, if that's who God is, if that's how God operates, then it means God will not lobotomize people's brains in order to get them to think true thoughts about him. Um, he could do that. He's got the power to do that. But that would turn you into a robot. That would depersonalize you. And the point of this whole thing is about inviting others in on this love, which has to be chosen, so God respects the personhood of people. That's why there's so much evil in the world. So God, is, he influences his people out of love, giving them as much truth as they can handle. But if he's not going to coerce them, if he's not going to lobotomize them and control their brains, there will come a point where God has to accept them as they are. And where they're at is they have got some seriously fallen and culturally conditioned uh, depictions of God. They think of God, very, at least much of the time, as an ancient near, nearest in deity. And God has to accept that. And that's God accommodating them in their fallen, culturally conditioned state. And that's God bearing their sin. God stays in covenant with them and stays in love with them and is committed to achieving his historical purposes through them, despite the fact that they're a fallen people who, who can't trust God fully and who, who can't receive the full truth of what he's like. And so the Bible is, is I, I think of it as sort of the, the, the inspired uh, record of God's missionary activity in this world. He's a missionary coming to this world. And, and, um, but he allows his people to do the writing of it, so they reflect their perspective on it. And, and when you read it through the lens of the cross, you can see how God has, throughout history, always been doing what he does on the cross. Meeting people where he's at. He's still doing it to this day. If it wasn't for this, we'd all be goners. He accepts us as we are. And he loves us to where he wants us to be. 
And so God stays in the relationship, even though it's going to damage his reputation. It, it, it doesn't reflect who he, who, he, who he really is. But he's going to trust his people later on, to, when he really re re reveals his full self, he's going to trust that they'll believe that so they can see what was really going on all this time while he was being a missionary. In it's a little bit like this. I, I knew a, a, uh, of a couple, I knew the, the, the a child of a couple uh, at Bethel College, and this couple was, uh, uh, became missionaries to this unreached people group in Africa, a, a particular tribe. And this tribe, as many of these tribes do, they, they practice female circumcision, which is just uh, genital mutilation. And it's been, they've been practicing for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, this missionary couple comes here, and of course, they are re revolted by this practice. They knew the tribe did this. But because they're missionaries, you can't just go in there and say, hey, you guys, stop this. This is not right. Uh, who are you? You know, you're a foreigner. You don't have any credibility with them. You've got to love them where they're at and, and, and become among them. If you ever hope to influence them in a direction where they're going to finally see for themselves that this is not the, something that should be done to little girls. So for three years, this missionary couple has to tolerate uh, the, the, this tribe practicing female circumcision. In fact, they not only have to tolerate it, but they, they uh, made it look like they actually condoned it. They, they ordered uh, some anesthesia to help with, with this so the girls wouldn't suffer so much. They had pain medications. They taught them how to sterilize their instruments. They, they were using infected stuff. Girls would get infections all the time. Uh, a number of medical things. They actually helped make it more humane. But if you were a member of this tribe, let's suppose you're, you're, a, you're a journalist in, in, in this tribe, and so you record all the activity of these missionaries um, from the day they got there. You would think that these people are okay with female circumcision. Uh, they're actually helping it out. They're, they're, they're totally okay with this. But after three years, this tribe is getting open to the gospel, and they begin to, you know, this couple's just been loving them all the time just swallowing the pain of hearing these little girls scream as they're going through this dehumanizing procedure. They had a, the grief it must have caused them was excruciating, but they put up with it out of love for the tribe, and they looked like they condoned it out of love for the tribe because they're accommodating the practice of the tribe, for the, but only because they want to stay in there influencing them so they eventually will stop it. And after three years, the tribe comes to the understanding that this is not consistent with what God wants for us, and the practice comes to an end. Now, imagine reading this journal. Let's say the guy kept on journaling, you know, for the next five, ten years. And you come there 20 years later and you're reading this journal. Uh, if you start at the beginning, you would assume that these doctors must totally condone this practice of female circumcision. But when you get to the third year, and now the true revelation of these missionaries is, is unveiled, now you could look back on those first three years if you really believe that these missionaries are opposed to it, and you'll see something very different. You'll look through the surface. The surface, it looks like they're condoning it. But now that you know who they really are, you can see through that surface, and you can see the in, in enormous suffering they were going through as they put up with this, this missionary activity, uh, or as they put up with this female circumcision. You have a totally different perspective now that you know the truth about, you, you know what else is going on. These missionaries were stooping to meet the tribe where they're at, in order to love them where they wanted to be. Uh, that's something like how we should read the Bible. Now that we have got this surprising end, we, we, God's full disclosure, we look back, and I submit to you that we can see something that the people themselves at the time couldn't very clearly see. Uh, what's really going on here? So that's the first question. 
uh, we ask, ask, how does God breathe his, his uh, or uh, how does this become a definitive revelation for us? Since the cross is the culminating and paradigmatic revelation of God, should we not read scripture expecting there will be times when we will need to look by faith through the sin-mearing service of a portrait of God to discern how it bears witness to the same God who is revealed on Calvary? Just put on that lens and, 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 and try it for a little bit. Okay, here's the second question that I asked that really begin to help me see how the cross is present in these things. Second question is this. How does God breathe this definitive revelation on the cross? Uh, when we hear that all scriptures God breathes, what comes to mind when you think of that? Now, for most people, we assume we know what that is because we breathe, and so we, we assume we know how God breathes. And we tend to assume it's a unilateral activity. God breathes it out. Unilateral. God alone does it. No other variables. And see, if you hold that assumption, then that leads to people to this idea that, well, since God is perfect, the book he breathes must be a perfect book. Stands the reason, right? And then, now, every time you come upon a contradiction or a problematic area, some part that's maybe not historical, whatever, it's a crisis of faith. More people, I think, I think this, this assumption has cost more people their faith. It almost cost me my faith as a college student. Because you take a course in the Bible and you realize this isn't the perfect book that I thought it was supposed to be. It's a very human book. But here's what's weird about that is that it's very much like the, the disciples when they assume they know what the Messiah is supposed to be. The Messiah is supposed to be a superhero. Come down here, kick Roman butt, kill our enemies, reinstate Israel, sovereign nation, all of that. They assume that, which is why when the real Jesus shows up, much of what he says to them goes in one ear and out the other. It's like throwing chinks on armor because their assumptions were so thick, the truth couldn't get in. And Jesus doesn't perform lobotomies. So he has to deal with them as they are. But we're always making this mistake. That surely, if God's going to come into this world, he'll come in uh, on a red carpet and born to royalty. Oh, no, he was born in a manger and, and to peasants and to a mother now who's going to have a reputation of being... You know, getting pregnant and not being married and, and all of that. He, he just, and he, he doesn't side with the religious people. He, side, he goes against religious people and he hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes, even though that ruins his reputation, which God has always been willing to do. We think God's supposed to be the shiny, the flashy, the wow. And God sometimes does show up in the shiny, flashy, and wow. But ordinarily, God's, in the, God's chosen things. To confound the world. The cross is the, the wisdom and the power of God. Who would have thunk? That looks like the weakest, stupidest thing in the world. So that's the kind of thing we're dealing with. Given that, why would we think that the Bible is going to be a stupid, fancy, extraordinary, wild book? It goes against the pattern. I don't, did you ever see Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom? Yeah. Uh, or no, the, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, and they, at the very end, they find the... the, the, the uh, uh, chalice, and they could go in the room with all those chalices, and they have to choose which of the chalices they think that is the, the original Holy Grail. Well, the one guy chooses a flashy, shiny one, because surely a king would drink out of a flashy, shiny, shiny gold cup. And so he drinks it, and then he incinerates. And the guy says, he chose poorly. <laughs> so the Indiana Jones smarts up, and he chooses the, the most humble uh, cup. Uh, lowly, clay thing. And that's, that's how God does. And so um, that's why we have to say it's infallible for what? For what purpose? Uh, but but uh, what we find in the cross is this. 
God breathes this, this definitive revelation, not in a unilateral way. But I notice is that the cross reflects God acting toward us. So it was God's plan of salvation. He's the one who took the initiative to become a human being. He's the one who put himself in a position where he's going to get crucified. So he, he, he's the one who's, he acts towards us. But the cross also involves God allowing us to act toward him and to condition the results of his breathing. Okay, now put your thinking caps on and follow this one. So everything, all the violence done to Jesus was done by people, not God under the influence of fallen principalities and powers. And, and so God allows people to act towards him, and that conditions how he appears as a result of his breathing. In other words, God breathes his, his definitive revelation not in a unilateral, one-way thing, but in a relational way. Which goes to pattern, because God is a relational God and always does things out of relationships. And so he lets the personhood of the person he's breathing through impact what comes out as a result of his breathing. Just as he does on the cross. Uh, one real clear example of this, and I got this from Bruxy when he was down at uh, the Crucifixion of the Warrior God conference last year. Um, but 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, Paul says this. And, and it, it, this just confirms that God's breathing is a dialectical or a relational thing. Uh, can, can you put the verse, uh, 1 Corinthians? Oh yeah, there's that. I'll read this first. Since the God who breathed his definitive revelation on the cross is the same God who breathed all scripture for the purpose of bearing witness to the cross... Should we not read scripture knowing that it reflects both God acting toward us as much as possible, he influences as much as possible, but because he's not a coercive God, doesn't do lobotomies, it also reflects God humbly allowing others to act on him as much as necessary. He influences as much as possible, but then accommodates as much as necessary. That's what he does on the cross, and I submit to you that's what he does in all of scripture. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, Paul says this, uh, and he's coming against the divisions in, at Corinth. Because uh, some are saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. Paul says, I thank God that I baptized no one except Crispus and Gaius. So that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. That's an important point. I only baptized two people. So you can't say that, that uh, you're baptized in my name. But then he has a second thought. Well, uh, well, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, actually, I don't know who I baptized and who I didn't. Uh, he doesn't remember. Which completely ruins his point. His whole point was, I only baptized two people. And it turns out, oh yeah, I did baptize a lot of people. Well, I'm pretty sure God knows how many people Paul baptized. But Paul's not. And that's what comes out in the text. Paul, God embraces Paul and breathes through Paul as Paul. He doesn't change Paul. Doesn't perfect Paul. Doesn't get him on, on, on super steroids or anything. Paul, as Paul is with his faulty memory, God breathes through Paul. So this is all God breathed, but notice there, there's an error. He, he, he was mistaken. We have here, he, he's correcting himself. So God influences as much as possible, but accommodates as much as necessary. He's a relational God. And so when we read the Bible, maybe we should read it knowing that it will reflect God acting toward us as much as possible, toward people as much as possible, but also then allowing people to act toward him and condition what, what, what gets produced as a result of his breathing. And, 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 and we'll talk about how, how to tell the, the, the difference between those two things. Uh, I, I just found that that, that, that paradigm shift uh, just did it for me in terms of beginning to understand what's going on in these violent depictions of, of God. Okay, I'm not going to give a few examples of accommodation because it goes to pattern. We find that throughout the Bible, God accommodates people where they're at. 
He's got his ideal. He influences people towards the ideal. But when the ideal is not possible, he goes to a plan B or a plan C. So you see it, for example, in marriage. I call this the Rorschach quality of our conceptions of God. Wait, is that the point I'm on? Yeah, I, wait, I think I jumped ahead. I did jump ahead. Thank you for keeping me honest up there. Yeah, I, I forgot the whole Rorschach. Okay, back up a little bit. Let's talk about the Rorschach stuff first, and then we'll go to accommodations. By that, I simply mean, you used this term yesterday, didn't you? Rorschach? Roxy did. did. Man, we are just like two peas in a pod, thinking on, trekking on the same wavelength. You, you find this throughout Scripture, that how you experience God and how you hear God is affected by the condition of your heart and mind. And, and, and you, you find this all over the place. So, so for example, uh, we see and hear what our hearts allow us to see and hear. Jesus talks about that. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. More than physical hearing goes on in communication. Right? As every wife knows. Uh, and, and so you can hear, but you're not really hearing. It depends on where your heart is. Uh, he says the Pharisees couldn't see that scripture is about Jesus because they did not have the love of God in their heart. He says, you don't come to me to have life of Scripture because the love of God's not in your heart. What you see, what you find in Scripture will say as much about you as what's actually in Scripture. He says at one point, why is my language not clear to you? And then he answers his own question. Because you are unable to hear what I say. And obviously they weren't deaf. They could hear what he was saying, but they couldn't hear what he was saying because their hearts weren't allowing them to. Um, the disciples couldn't hear many teachings about, uh, uh, about how Jesus came to suffer and die. All the while, all three years, Jesus is talking about his future crucifixion and whatever. But when it actually happens, they're shocked. And it's because they couldn't hear it. They had their own assumptions going on, and that blocked them from hearing uh, what Jesus was saying. Uh, unbelievers can't see the glory of Christ because a veil lies over their mind, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. It's right there in front of them, but sometimes you, your heart won't allow you to see it it can be right in front of you, and, and you'll, you'll be blind to it. Uh, the, the early Anabaptists had this thing called the hermeneutic obedience. And they're trying to uh, make sense of how, how people as smart as Calvin and Luther didn't get uh, that the kingdom is distinct from the kingdom of the world, and they couldn't get that, that we're called to love our enemies. It's right there. It's so obvious. And their conclusion was that the mind can never accept, or the mind can never embrace what the heart is unwilling to obey. So what you hear, what you see, is conditioned by the state of your heart. Um, I love this. There's two passages that say this. To the faithful, you appear faithful. To the blameless, you appear blameless. To the pure, you appear pure. But to the devious, ichesh. Uh, it literally means kind of twisted, crooked. To the devious, you appear shrewd, pathal. And that word is, is actually very, very close to ichesh. Uh, it, it, it means twisted, Perverse. Uh, uh, so the God that you see is the God that, that, that your heart allows you to see. And if you're pure in heart, then you'll see God pure. But if you're twisted, you're going to experience God in twisted ways. Um, and we all kind of know this. Like, you know, if you've ever been around a person who's a thief, they're always paranoid. They think everyone's a thief. Because we always tend to project ourselves onto on other people. Um, well, that's how it is with God. There's a Rorschach quality here. So just keep that in mind. Now, knowing that, it becomes important to realize that the Old Testament itself is always bearing witness to how hard-hearted the Israelites were. So, for example, uh, the Israelites are repeatedly depicted as being a stiff-necked people who resist God's spirit. Uh, Hosea and Isaiah declare that uh, there's no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. None. 
Yeah, there's that passage in Psalms 50. When you did these things, you thought that I was just like you. And that's, that's we assume that God's like us. So, so if some wrongdoing, if he doesn't come down and stop it, we assume that's because he, he's okay with it. We're always making God our own image. And the Israelites did the same thing. Um, there's no faithfulness, no knowledge of God in the land. Even the spiritual leaders, Isaiah says, are led astray. Even the appointed priests, Jeremiah says, don't know God. So given this pervasive testimony that they don't know God, they're always trying to be like the other nations, they're stiff-necked people, they're stubborn, all that, how could they not have twisted views of God? Given that they themselves were twisted, and the Bible tells us if you're twisted, you're going to see God in twisted ways, we, we should anticipate that they're going to be uh, uh, experiencing God in different ways. Here's an example. Um, it's a little peekaboo into, into the mind of Moses. And Moses talked with God as a friend, but as Bruxy pointed out yesterday, even he only got to see the back part of God, whatever that means. It's like, did Yahweh moon Moses? Uh, but but it, 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 he, he, he only saw the after effect of God. He couldn't see the glory of God. But here we, we get a little peekaboo into the mind of Moses. It says, the God of the Hebrews, he's talking to Pharaoh here. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues and with a sword. Now there's nowhere where Yahweh said, Moses, if you fail to convince Pharaoh to let the people go, I'm going to kill you. But that's, that's what Moses thinks. Moses and Aaron. It's like an Al Capone. You talk about high-pressure sales. If you don't convince them, then... I'm going to kill you. And some scholars argue that he's actually saying you're going to kill all the Israelites. Either let us go or Yahweh's going to slay us. But there's no, does God really do that? Does put the pressure on the salesmen to make the sales? This is, this is a peekaboo, a little insight into Moses' ancient Near Eastern mindset. Throughout the ancient Near East, gods were capable of doing this kind of nasty stuff. Uh, and the Israelites are part of that culture and they're conceiving of God in very much the, the same terms. Okay, now we can get to some examples of accommodations. Uh, in marriage, for example, God's ideal in Genesis 2, for a man and woman, God's ideal is for us to have one sexual partner our whole life. And it's to take place in a marriage covenant. But the show hardly gets started when all of a sudden we find polygamy popping up all over the place. And God doesn't condemn it. He accommodates it. In fact, sometimes, and this is true for a lot of accommodations, once God accommodates polygamy, he sometimes comes across as a polygamy-approving deity. He steps into that role and plays it, because that's where his people are at. And so, for example, in, in, in 2 Samuel 12, uh, you know, after David commits the sin with Bathsheba, um, the Lord says, I, I gave you all these wives. I gave you all these concubines. Did you have to go after one more? As though you think that this was God's idea. He rewards his kings with giving them lots of different wives. God hates polygamy. He loves monogamy, but his people apparently aren't capable of doing that. And so he acquiesces to this. Probably because in ancient societies where there's a lot of tribal war conflict, men fall into a shortage. And, and the prospects for being a single woman in the ancient world were not particularly happy. Uh, often you were just left with prostitution. And, and, or starvation. And so God is saying it's better to have these women and children under uh, the care of some man, even though he's caring for other women, better that than starving kids and prostitution. 
And so God makes, he's a realistic God. He, he, makes the, he makes the best of the situation. And then he adds on concubines later on. They weren't even fully married. They just sired children. Um, but it's better than having them starve. So he, here's God bending the rules. He, he, he's got his ideal, and he's always trying to get us to that ideal, but he accepts the real. And he does that in all of our lives, doesn't he? Um, some of us are not on plan A or not even on plan B or C or D or like third way through the alphabet. But God, however, wherever you're at, God will go there in order to meet you there and move you in a better direction. Uh, you see this with the king. Israel wasn't supposed to have a king. In fact, I'm convinced humans were never supposed to have other human authorities. Uh, in, in Genesis, we're giving dominion over the earth and the animal kingdom, but not over one another. The first time you find any sort of hierarchy in the Bible is in chapter 3, right after the fall. And that's when the Lord is announcing the curse, and he says that to the woman, your desire will be towards him, but he shall rule over you. And since it's men doing most of the theologizing throughout church history, uh, they interpret that to mean, oh, the woman's just going to desire us sexually, and, but we'll be her boss. But the passage doesn't mean that. Uh, the Lord isn't here describing how he wants marriages to be. He's decrying how they're going to be because of the fall. Right. And the word desire there, it's used in the next chapter, chapter 4, when it says that sin desires Cain. And it has the connotation of to manipulate. To desire is to desire to manipulate, to control. The woman's going to be trying to control the man, but because of his superior strength, the man, man's going to tend to rule over the woman. And that term rule has a connotation of to tyrannize. And sadly, this has been, to a large degree, what marriages have been like throughout history. It was supposed to be a one, a, a one flesh, beautiful relationship, a, a partnership. And by the way, when, when the Lord makes the woman as the man's helper, that doesn't mean that she's a subordinate inferior. In fact, the word helper there is usually applied to God. God is our helper. And we need him to be our helper because we're not strong enough to do it alone. The passage is saying the man needs a woman because men aren't strong enough to do it alone. Can I get an amen from somebody? Yes. All right, so it was a beautiful, equal relationship, but now it's going to turn into a power struggle. Um, and and it's, 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 a, it's a terrible thing. They weren't supposed to be lording over one another. And so Israel initially didn't have a king because God wanted to be their king. And the Lord was always telling them, if you'll just trust me as your king, I'll fight your battles for you. You'll never have to fight. You'll never have to pick up the sword. So he didn't want them to be. And the Lord fights in a lot of creative ways uh, without using violence. He turns things on each other and all sorts of things. They were incapable of doing that. No one else in their neighborhood acts like that. They all have kings and they have security in those kings. So the Israelites begin to cry out, we want a king, we want a king. We don't be like other nations so our king will lead us out in battle and defend our borders. So finally Samuel brings it to the Lord and the Lord says, in 1 Samuel 8, he goes, well, Give the people what they want. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So to trust in a human authority as a king is to not trust in God. Right. Think about it. I, I really believe, I, I, legally I have a president down in the States, but I, he's not my president. I'm really happy to say that. Uh, but whoever's president wouldn't be my president. I, I obey the laws of the land for the most part because, but, but not for the, because they have any authority over me, but because the one who has authority over me tells me to do it. So for God's sake, I'll abide by the laws of the land, but I've only got one master. I've only got one Lord, and there's no competition. So, but here God accommodates. Okay, if that's where you're at, I'll, I'll meet you there. So he gives him a king, and he warns him, it's got to be nasty. And it was nasty. But if that's what you want, that's what you get. Once God assumes that, however... 
And this is a huge deal in the ancient years because the king was the center of the religion. Their assumption was that all of God's, whatever God they're worshiping, the interactions with the people will come through the king. And the welfare of the nation depended on the behavior of the king. The whole nation was punished if the king wasn't good. The whole nation was blessed if the king was good. Everybody in ancient years thinks that. When God agrees to a kingship, he's agreeing to that whole package. And so from then on, what you find in the, in the Bible is, is basically the same kind of ancient Near Eastern setup that you have in the other, uh, 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 other countries. Uh, the king becomes the medium and, and through which God relates to the people. Um, and you'd think that it was God's idea. Never once does he bring up, even when the kingship goes really bad, he doesn't say, I told you so. See, I told you so. He, he, he plays this role, and you'd think that it was his idea. And he honors the king and blesses the king. And he even weaves it into his messianic plan. Because Jesus is going to be a king, uh, like, uh, like, like King David. But it's an accommodation. So just note there that God allows people to act on him where they're at. He accommodates it. And that affects how he appears and how he interacts with people. He's an accommodating God. Uh, another example or with sacrifices. You have animal, and there's several passages that seem to suggest that they thought Yahweh wanted child sacrifices. I won't get into that now, but... You know, this thing about sacrifice, it just shows up. Never once does God, God doesn't initiate this program. He just finds people doing it. In fact, everybody in the ancient years sacrificed animals and children to their gods. It's just what they did. So the Israelites were already doing this. It wasn't God's great idea. It, it was, they're, they're, they're already doing it. In fact, in, in Leviticus 17, uh, verse 7, uh, the Lord says, Stop sacrificing to the goat demons and make your sacrifices to me. They're going to be sacrificing anyways. That's just what you do in the ancient East. So they're not ready to get rid of this. So what God does is he accepts it and he retools it. He gives it a new definition, a new meaning. The, the, the blood of the animals is you know, reminding them of the consequences of covenant breaking and things like that. So he gives it a different meaning, but he, he doesn't stop the practice. They need that. But you can see the influence of the Holy Spirit. God influences as much as possible and accepts as much as necessary. So you do see an improvement here. For example, everybody in the ancient Near East believed that when you sacrificed an animal or a child, you were actually feeding the gods. It was, it, it was the food for the gods. Um, and, and we find this in, in different accounts, like in, in the uh, Enuma Elish. This guy named Utnapishtim, who was kind of a Noah figure in, in this, this uh, book. Uh, after the flood, he, he makes sacrifices. And it says, the gods smelled the sweet savor of the sacrifice. And, 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 and they swarmed like flies, it says. And they came down and devoured the sacrifice. Well, in the Bible, you don't have any depiction of God actually eating sacrifices. So he, he was able to wean them out off of that idea. But he... They weren't ready to let go of the idea that he at least enjoys the smell of it. So 13 times you have this phrase, uh, Yahweh enjoyed the sweet savor of the sacrifice. Um, and we maybe take that as a metaphor, and it becomes a metaphor later on in the New Testament, but they meant it very literally. And they just weren't ready to let, let that one go. And so God says, okay, go, go on, keep thinking that I enjoy the smell of the sacrifices. Later on, however, we find that it, it, when people are ready for it, God makes it clear that he doesn't delight in animal sacrifices. Uh, and you don't need that. That was, at one point, he says, that was never my idea. So uh, he accommodates it, meets people where they're at. He looks like an ancient Eastern God who devours sacrifices. God's weaning them off of that, but he leaves as much in place as is necessary for, necessary for them. If you think I still enjoy the smell of that stuff, go ahead. You know, we'll, we'll let that go for a while. Uh, push as far as possible, accept as much as necessary. Then the law. The, the law is one major accommodation. 
Now, they didn't know that at the time, of course. Uh, they thought the law was how you get right with God. But as I mentioned yesterday, that was something that just, they needed it for a time. Um, but it was, it was always meant to be a, a, a negative object lesson. So Paul, put the, the stuff under the law, put the whole thing up there, I'll just read it. When Yahweh promised Abraham that all the nations would be blessed for him, Paul says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, not by the law. So he asked this question, well, why was the law given? If the law can't justify you, why was it given? He says, well, it's humanity needed to be kept in custody, he says in Galatians 3, and locked up under the law because we could, we, we, we could be, we weren't ready. Oh, who knows what I was thinking when I wrote that. We're ready to receive uh, the faith that was later to be revealed. So the law functioned as a guardian, pedagogos, a teacher, to lead us to Christ that we might be uh, justified by faith. And later on, he says, the law was given to expose and to even increase sin. So it, it was a negative object lesson setting up what's going to happen later on. But the whole thing was an accommodation. Uh, it wasn't God's ideal will. And that means that the whole idea of God being the lawgiver and, and, and you know, this law-oriented deity, that also is an accommodation. We can't get right with God on the basis of the law because you can't get right with the lawgiver. If you're relating to God as a lawgiver, you're always going to come up short. That's what Paul's getting at. But that's not what God really is like. Now, that's how they saw him, but that's not God, what God's really like because when God shows up, it's not about law at all. It's, in fact, when Jesus shows up, this is how surprising the, this ending is. He introduces a, a covenant that is, in some respects, completely the opposite of the, of the first covenant. So the first covenant was based on nationality. But now Jesus introduces a new covenant that's gotten, it's transnational, includes all people. And, and they, they had a covenant that was based on the law. Jesus comes and gives us a covenant that is based on grace. And they had a covenant that presupposed violence. Because if you're going to have a nation and you're going to have a law, the law has to have teeth, so you've got to be willing to use violence. But when Jesus shows up, he introduces a covenant where the covenant people swear off all violence. And, and all of that is part of the law. The law, the nationalism, the violence, it all goes, and a lot of the laws themselves are violent. I mean, if you're a stubborn kid, you get stoned to death. Um, it, it, so all of that is, 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 is part of this accommodation that's set up. It's like what Israel learned was that when Jesus shows up, for over a thousand years, they've been in bondage to other nations. When Jesus shows up, the curses of the covenant have been put in effect. They haven't been getting the blessing uh, because they never could be faithful with God. They never kept the law. They couldn't keep the covenant. And so when Jesus shows up, what he's really doing is he's saying, okay, uh, how's that covenant working for you? Not very good. Uh, are you ready for something totally different? Are you ready to give up thinking that you could keep that law and have be a holy nation? And no, it, it, that, that was there to show you the need for this. And Jesus comes and this is the one God, the only God that we could possibly be justified with. We can't, we, we could never stand right before God uh, if, if God was that lawgiver of the Old Testament. So it's, it's, an, it's, it's all an accommodation. Uh, so it says here, uh, when's law, give? law was a shadow of things that were to come, but the reality is found in Christ, we're told in, in Hebrews. And there was, he says there was something wrong with the first covenant. Hebrews says that. Now, it, it's God-breathed, but it's wrong. Because God breathes in ways that accommodate the wrongness of the people. He's, he breathes in a relational way. So there's something wrong with the first covenant. The new covenant renders the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated, he says, will soon disappear. Um, so you have the right in the Bible itself. Yeah. It just shows that the need... To, uh, everything depends on the perspective you take to, when you begin reading the Bible. 
they really thought that the law could get them right with God. That's where they were at. So God met them where they were at. And he therefore took on a semblance of a lawgiver, kind of deity. But now that when Jesus shows up, we see that that's obsolete. That was wrong. And now we can put it aside because we've got the truth. When you get the reality, you don't need a shadow. Fourth, and this one is, when I began to discover this, uh, it blew me away. Here's the thing. Most of the Old Testament depictions of Yahweh as a violent warrior closely parallel other ancient Near Eastern warrior deities. Here's what I discovered. Like, you've got some magnificent portraits of God in the Old Testament. Um, the Spirit of God breaks through their hard hardness and gives a revelation of the truth. God's always influencing as much as possible in the direction of truth. And sometimes, for whatever reasons, it gets through. And when we have these beautiful portraits of God, like, for example, the portrait of God as, as, as Israel's husband, there is nothing like them in any of the other ancient Eastern countries. No one thinks about God this way. They completely stand out. They're, that's one of the ways that you know that it's divine revelation. No one's thinking about God, talking about God in this way. Altogether unique. But when they portray God as a warrior, those portraits are very much like what everyone else is saying about the gods. Uh, frequently, the biblical author will, will take a song that was sung in Mesopotamia, or Samaria, or, or, or Canaan, and, and it was sung to a different god, but they'll just take the song and swipe out their god and put in Yahweh. They just kind of borrow the hymns. So there their thinking is very much in line with, and that's one piece of evidence that you're dealing with, culturally conditioned material that God is, is, is accommodating. It, it just goes along with it. I'll give you one example of this. One of the most ferocious, and, and you've got to know this, that in the ancient Near East, the uniform assumption of everybody is that the way you praise God is by crediting your violence to God. Uh, it's it, it considered to be sacrilege for you to engage in violence but not give your God the credit for it. And the more vicious and bloodthirsty the violence, the more you're praising your God. You try to get in this mindset. It's like, my God's bigger than your God. My God, my, my God eats your babies. And it, it was just gross. But they sincerely think that they're, they're exalting their God. Our God is more violent than your God. So one of the most ferocious deities we know about in the ancient Near East uh, is this god, Anat. And Anat was famous uh, for being uh, a cannibalistic deity uh, involved in what's called military cannibalism. Uh, some, some people groups, not most, but some people groups had a practice when they would defeat a nation or win a battle, they would devour parts of the defeated foes, especially the heart. And they thought that they were getting the strength from their defeated enemies. Uh, and it was also a way of, of an ultimate insult. You, you eat them. It's like you're nothing now. Well, a knot, this deity, would go around and devour all of the foes that a knot defeated. Of course, a knot isn't real. This is all in the imagination of uh, the, the, the Canaanites. Uh, but they, they eat their opponents, and then they give their god the credit for it. We find echoes of a not, a not hymnology in the, the, the Bible, in the Old Testament. But you also will see the spirit at work because the imagery is a little less macabre, ghoulish, gross than it is in, in, in the canon literature. So uh, here's an example. Um, uh, Psalms. Oh no, this is Deuteronomy 32. It says, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh. 
with the blood of the slain, uh, the slain and the captives uh, from the long-haired heads of the enemy. So this is in a not-sounding kind of a song, but notice this. It's not Yahweh himself who drinks the blood and devours the flesh of his enemies. It's his sword. My sword will devour. Now, it's kind of a weird metaphor, but it's a move away from, it's a little bit of an improvement because it's, it's, it's moving away from Yahweh himself being uh, cannibalistic. But it's still an accommodation. Here's what it says in Isaiah. And this is very close to uh, in a not uh, song that was sung in Canaan. The Lord is angry with all the nations. His wrath is on all their armies. He will totally destroy them. He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will stink. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. And it goes on. It's just this macabre. It's like, it's, it's, it's just gore. And that's how they praise God. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood and it's covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat and kidneys of rams. The Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. This is a not imagery. They're influenced by it, but there's a slight improvement. It's the sword that does the devouring, not Yahweh himself. Uh, then uh, later on we find, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will, they will be drunk on their own blood as with wine. Okay, here's, a, here's, a, here's a, a, another step of progress. Because here, the cannibalism is done by the people themselves. They devour themselves. And as gross as that imagery is, um, it's capturing a deep truth. That, that sin, is, sin is inherently self-devouring. It, it, evil is self-destructive. And, and what we find the Lord doing, and I talk a lot, a lot about this in the book, is that the, when the Lord turns people over to their sin, um, they end up self-imploding. Evil self-destructs. And that is the punishment for it. God doesn't have to do anything outside of that. Punishment carries with it, or sin carries with it, 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 it its own punishment. And then finally, uh, not finally, but getting there, uh, Psalms 58. The righteous will be glad when they are avenged, uh, when they dip their feet in the blood of the wicked. Now, personally, I wouldn't get into that. Like, oh, let's go wait in their blood. But that, that was a common thing. You dance in the blood of your enemies. And, and so here we find it uh, uh, creeping into Scripture. Then Psalm 68, the Lord says, I will bring them from Bashan. I will bring them from the depths of the sea, that your feet may wade in the blood of your foes with the tongues of your dogs, uh, while the tongue, tongues of your dogs have their share. This is like... You see, it's insulting the enemies, the dogs lapping up your blood and we'll dancing in it. And that's the mindset of these people. And this is their view of God. And God, since he won't lobotomize anybody, doesn't coerce anyone to believe in truth. He influences as much as possible. So you see an improvement, but he accepts as much as necessary. And this is how they see God. This is how they, and they weren't ready to receive more than that. Okay, so now I want to turn to some confirmations that the portrait of Yahweh given in the Harim command is an accommodation. My claim is that the portrait of God giving this command, that is a sin-mirroring surface. That reflects not the true character of God, but it reflects the mindset of the people he's dealing with, and therefore the people, the mindset he has to put up with. Um, but we, knowing what God's really like, what should amaze us, is that God was humbly and patiently willing to stoop and meet these people where they're at. He's going to continue to further his purposes through these people, keep his covenant with them, keep in relationship with them, with them even though they think this about him. And so in the, missionary, in the record of his missionary activity, this is how he's going to appear on the surface. We have to see through it to see God doing what he does on the cross. So here's some confirmations. Number one. The, the, the portrait of Yahweh given this command reflects ancient Near Eastern assumptions about the warrior deities. The very fact that this depiction of God 
is standard among throughout the ancient East is one indication, one confirmation that we're dealing with culturally conditioned material. Uh, this is the, the fallen, culturally conditioned humans that God is breathing through. Um, number two, Moses is the only one reported to have heard this command. Joshua gives the command on Moses' authority. Whenever Joshua gives it, he says, as Moses has commanded. So the only one who's recorded as having gotten this command is Moses. Now Paul says that if anyone, even an angel of light, teaches anything contrary to the gospel he preached, we're to place them under God's curse. His gospel is the message of the cross. Uh, you just follow me on this. So Paul, if, even if an angel, what looks like an angel of light, comes down and gives any kind of gospel that's different from the one that we've received, the gospel of the cross, we're to let them be anathema. Let them be under a curse. I submit to you that the claim that Yahweh wants us to slaughter an entire people, numerous people groups, men, women, children, infants, and animals, uh, that's about as contrary to the message of the cross as could be. And so, whatever else you get out of the seminar, if anyone tells you that God told you to kill someone, don't believe them. <laughs> it's not of God. Uh, this is a... Well, they may have been justified believing Moses. We, we, we shouldn't. Uh, we, you know, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Right. So this is an indication that Moses is reflecting his fallen and culturally conditioned perspective. On, on uh, um, Here's a bee up here. And it's not flying away. I'm a bee charmer. I'm a bee charmer. I take authority over that bee. Number three, Yahweh always told the Israelites that if they trust him, they won't have to use a sword. So the very fact that they use a sword going into the land of Canaan indicates that they're out of God's will. They're not trusting God fully. Um, Yahweh could have done it in some nonviolent ways, as we'll see here in this fourth point. But uh, they, they, their, their, their faith wasn't up to that. The very fact that they're using the sword is an indication that uh, they're not trusting God fully. Number four, now listen to this one. We find in the Old Testament reflections of a nonviolent plan for the people of Israel to enter into the promised land. So, for example, it says this in, in uh, Exodus, Exodus 23. The Lord says, I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet. Sirah, it's a literal insect, ahead of you to drive out the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. That sounds like a good plan. Yes. He's going to make it too pesty for them. And so they're going to naturally migrate off the land. That sounds like, kind of like a, a, a Jesus plan. Uh, and he's going to do it slowly because he doesn't want the land to be overrun and he wants the Israelites to grow a little more. So let's gradually migrate in as they migrate out. And, and I'll use the insects to do that. Another place we find a, a different plan. It says, do not defile yourselves in Leviticus, Leviticus 18. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways like the Canaanites were doing because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. He's going to drive them out before them. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. If you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. Um, one funky thing about, Hebrews, about the Hebrew language is you can speak about the future 
in a past tense. Uh, and that's what's going on here. He's giving a plan about how he's going to get his people into the land and get the uh, uh, other people out, and it's by having the land vomit them out. Probably meaning that the crops are going to become, it will become unfruitful. And so they're going to naturally migrate off the land, and the Israelites will migrate on. And you find this a number of times where he doesn't specify how he's going to do it, but he says, I will drive, if you trust me, I will drive out the people. Uh, you won't have to lift a sword. So the question is, what happened to those plans? I'll do it slowly. I'll do it with insects. I'll, draw, I'll cause the land to dry up. And then all of a sudden, slaughter them all. Did God just all of a sudden have a bad day or did he change the mood or what happened? Uh, I submit to you that God gave these plans kind of as a witness uh, to where his people are at to show that they weren't capable of this. Uh, they heard those plans the same way the disciples heard Jesus talk about his crucifixion. No one, no one in the ancient Near East would conceive of God doing something like that. Um, the gods are there to help us kill. Uh, but they don't do the killing for us, and they certainly don't find nonviolent ways to get us in places. No one does that. If you're going to take over someone's land in the ancient Near East, it means you slaughter or enslave them. Um, but you're, no one trusts God to do anything like this for the people. It's just, and so it just it, it fell on, 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 on deaf ears. So we have all these other passages saying that he's going to drive out this population. So remember the Rorschach quality of all of our hearing and seeing. To the twisted, God appears twisted. And this is, I submit to you, a somewhat twisted picture of God. A fifth point is that you have this captain of the Lord's army that shows up in Joshua 5. A very strange episode. But right in, just before they're going into all this battle, they've already fought a bunch of battles and slaughtered a bunch of people and desecrated a bunch of cities. But now they're going to go to Jericho. And he meets the, the captain of the Lord's army, it, it, it says. And it could be an angel of the Lord or it could be Yahweh himself. And Joshua says, whose side are you on? And the angel says, neither. Which is really, really interesting. Uh, that is completely unlike what you find in the surrounding culture. If there's a battle going on, the assumption is that our God and our angels are fighting against their God and their angels. You find this in the Bible too. You know, David has to wait to hear the angels of the Lord marching on the treetops of the balsam trees before he goes in the battle. So there's a two-level battle going on. That's what they always assume. Here, the captain of the Lord's army, if anyone's going to be in this battle, it would be this guy. And he says, I'm not, I'm not fighting. I'm, I'm neutral on this. Which tells you that the fighting wasn't supposed to be going on. Number six. Got two more. The inconsistent way the command is given and applied reflects its human origin. This is, this is coming out of Moses, not Yahweh. So, for example, listen to this. When the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you've defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Harim. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. In one passage, the Lord says, uh, anyone who is slack on wielding the sword is going to fall on the sword. He's depicted as saying this. He's threatening them if they don't slaughter enough. But then he says, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or, or take their daughters uh, for your sons. Wait, oh yeah. Uh, for they will turn your children away from following the earth serving God. What? You just said destroy them totally. And now you're saying don't marry them. I suppose it could work. <laughs> Don't marry the corpses. But here's what you find about this. 
there's a, a complete lack of consistency on how this thing gets carried out. Sometimes you have to slaughter everybody. Other times you're allowed to keep uh, uh, the virgins. Sometimes you're allowed to keep women in general and the young children. And sometimes they, they just enslave everybody. Um, that I submit to you, that's what you'd expect from a man-made concept. It, it, it's you know, carrying it out, but man, somebody, we're supposed to slaughter them all, but there's just some really hot chicks here. We should, you know, spare them. I, it, it, it gets to the twisted, God appears twisted, and the commands get twisted, and, and, and so it's, it's not carried out with any kind of consistency. That reflects its human origin. And then finally, I'll offer you, here's, here's what I think is the cruciform interpretation of the conquest narrative. And again, this is, just try this on, see if it works. If it doesn't, find something better. But he, he, here's how I think about it. Number one, God wanted Israel in the land, but he hoped to get them there by means of a slow, nonviolent process. There's nothing, I, I, I don't see any reason to think that the promised land was itself an accommodation. That was a very strategic location. God wanted them in that land. But as I read it, his ideal was to do it nonviolently if his people could trust him. Yahweh said to Moses, enter the land. But what Moses, being an ancient Near Eastern person, hears is, go slaughter them so you can enter the land. Yahweh says, I give you this as an inheritance. But no ancient Eastern God does that. You always have to work with the God to get what you want. So what Moses hears is, oh, we're supposed to go and, and, and take that inheritance. Instead of having to give it to us, we have to go and slaughter people. The Canaanites had pushed God away, so their, their protection was gone, it says in Numbers 14. Uh, every time we, we push God away, and, and uh, that leaves us vulnerable, so they're, they're vulnerable. With a grieving heart, Yahweh allowed his people who were intent on violence do as they pleased. He's not going to lobotomize people. And so he has to accept them where they're at, and this is where they're at. And how it must have grieved God to just watch this. Um, you know, we talk about the problem of evil and the problem of human suffering. But see, if there's a problem for us, it's infinitely more a problem for God. God loves every one of those Canaanites more than they love themselves. More than the mothers love their children or the husbands love their wives. And so his heart would be grieved. This is, the, this, is, this is the pain that anticipates the cross. As God has to now bear this sin, accommodate the sin. He's like the missionaries who have to put up with female circumcision. He, he's got no choice but to go through with it. So he has to watch his people do this. And he allows it, but he didn't command it. This became another negative object lesson demonstrating that they, the, all who live by the sword will die by the sword. You notice once they get into the promised land, it was supposed to be flowing with milk and honey, and it's supposed to be this oasis, and this is where they're going to kick back and everything's going to be wonderful. But the moment they get there, the violence just escalates. Read the book of Judges. It's Violence always begets violence. There hasn't ever been a nation in history that hasn't violently rose to the top only to be toppled by violence eventually. It's, it's, a, it's a broken record. And so violence escalates. It makes it one more object lesson. And then it says, that The depiction of God as uttering genocidal commands to Moses is a sin-mirroring surface of this revelation. Since we know that God is, we know what God is truly like on the basis of the cross, we have to exercise the same surface-penetrating faith we use to see the cross as the definitive revelation of God. And we do that to behold God bearing the sin of his people. When, when you read the Bible through a lens, a cross lens, which means with the full confidence that God really looks like he's revealed to be on the cross, 
all of these violent portraits of God become literary crucifixes. They're, they're, they're what the cross does. We're seeing God, in a sense, being crucified here as he's bearing the sin of his people and taking on appearance that mirrors the ugliness of that sin. And so, um, I, what I found is this. The, the, the violent portraits of God in the Bible used to be, for me, the biggest problem I had with the Bible. I, it was the biggest hurdle I had to cross in believing this is all God's word. Now that I've been reading it through the lens of the cross, the manner in which these things point to the cross and anticipate the cross it strikes me as one of the most profound reasons for believing the Bible is God's word. Uh, every one of these portraits become a, liter a literary reminder that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, in a sense, they, they, they testify that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. He, he's always been being willing to be slain uh, in order to stay in relationship with his people and to further his purposes through his people. And so, in the same way that the cross is revoltingly beautiful, Revolting on the surface, but beautiful when you exercise surface-penetrating faith to see through the sin-mirroring surface, to behold God stooping to bear the sin of his people. Um, and the same way the cross does that, every one of these portraits does that. They're revoltingly beautiful. It means that, so to the natural eye and the natural mind, um, all you see is the surface. And, and that's why a non-believer and a believer can do exegesis of the text if you just know how to interpret words, you can do that. And if you don't have faith, that's all you're going to get. But we're called to always be exercising this faith. And so while that's the meaning it has on the surface, we can see something else going on. I'll end with this. Uh, I had, as I was writing this book, I, I was seeking for analogies in, in, in movies and literature and stuff. And I got some real good ones. Analogies of this accommodating God. The best one I got was from this couple who works in a children's home, a foster home. And um, they practice this incarnational, uh, they have an incarnational ministry where they, they believe it's, all, it's so important to get on the inside of a child uh, and understand the world before you try to adjust their behavior. You, you have to love them on the inside. So, and this home only takes in uh, kids who have been severely abused. At one point, they, they, they take in this 10-year-old girl. I'll call her Susie. And in the morning, to their surprise, they find that she had smeared poop on her walls, the walls of her room. All of them, all over the place. And a lot of folks, I think, would be mad at that. Would have like, thought, this is rebellious behavior, this is disgusting behavior, you're reprimand her, maybe ground her, whatever. But these folks practice this incarnational ministry, and so their, their, their thinking is that if Susie felt the need to smear poop on her wall, she must, there must be a reason for it. And until we know what that reason is, we're not just going to tell her to stop that. Now, they did put some kind of parameters around it. They gave her a section of the room, um, and they said, okay, can you just smear your poop on that wall, you know, and we'll come in in the morning and clean it up. And as long as you feel the need to do that, we'll let you do that, but just kind of keep it to that one part of the wall. Um, and so they're loving her in the midst of her poop smearing behavior, which is gross and disgusting, but that's where she's at. They're accommodating this out of love. Now, in time, they became safe enough for Susie, for Susie to explain to them why she was doing this. And it turns out, did I tell you guys this before? Oh, okay. I was going to have, I think, a deja vu experience. Like, did I share this yesterday? Um, 
that they found out that uh, from the age of four on, Susie's dad, almost always in a state of drunkenness, would come into her room in the middle of the night and sexually abuse her. And this was happening on a regular basis until when she was six, one time during the sexual abuse, she accidentally defecated. And her father was disgusted and stomped out of the room. And little Susie came up with a very clever plan. I know how to keep dad away from me. And so every night she would smear poop on her walls. And the dad would never come in and, and molest her when that was there. To us, the smell of poop is disgusting, but to her it was the smell of safety. And, and she couldn't go to sleep without it. This, this was her sense of safety. And when they found that out, uh, they, they, they said that, that was very, very smart. That was, it was brilliant. And as long as you feel the need to do that, we'll help you do that. And so they would actually put on some latex gloves, one worker every night, and, and would get down on their knees and help her smear that poop on that part of the wall. Just to show we're in solidarity with you. We're in this with you. We love you right where you're at. And of course, they don't like this behavior, but they love her more than they dislike the behavior. That's everything. Now, imagine if a social worker were to come to that, that house to check on them. And the social worker comes in and sees this worker with this child smearing poop on the wall. They'd probably call protective services. It's like, this looks, this looks terrible. It looks abusive. If you don't know what else is going on, if you just look on the surface of it, it looks like a disgusting thing. A dangerous thing, something that no good social worker or worker foster home would ever do. But when you know the character of the people, when you have faith in the character of the people, and you know the rest of the story, what, what looks revoltingly ugly becomes profoundly beautiful. It's disgusting on the surface, but man, look through the surface and you'll see a beautiful act of these people stooping to meet this young lady where they're at. That's, this is what accommodation is. This is what God does with us. He dives into our poop smearing. And this is what he does on the cross. He, he absorbs the poop of the world and takes on a poopy appearance. And it's disgusting and it's revolting. But we know what God truly is like. And this becomes a beautiful revelation when you look through it to see the God behind it all, stepping into it. And I think he's doing that throughout the whole Bible. He's been doing that throughout all of history. He's still doing it today. He loves us in the middle of our poop in order to love us out of our poop smearing. Yes. And in time, this young lady was able to trust in these folks enough to give up that, 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 that behavior. She felt secure enough to go to sleep without the smell of poop.